Thanks, Timothy, and good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. As Timothy, just pray. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, so glad that you are here this morning at Christ Central. And uh, I want to personally, before jumping into uh, the sermon, personally invite you to come tonight to our Lenten healing service. Uh, you, we've been announcing this, but uh, it's one of my favorite services uh, last year during Lent, and I'm, I'm really excited about it tonight. And I realize that even the name uh, Lenten healing service can. Uh, sound new, or maybe the service might even be new for you, I want to encourage you to, to come. It's simply a service of prayer and song. Uh, there will be no pressure applied to you to do anything you would not want to do. Uh, it is simply a, a time for us to give space and opportunity to pray, and there will be times for, if you want personal prayer for, for healing, whether it be spiritual, emotional, or physical healing, uh, there will be space for that as well. And so uh, I invite you to come tonight. It's a one-hour service from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Uh, and we're offering this, this service during Lent because Lent is a season of embracing the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own lives, which I know can feel quite strange. And there's an episode uh, on Netflix's Chef's Table about the Italian chef Dario Cecchini. Uh, Dario is famous for making the most delicious dishes in the world using all the parts of the animals people typically discard. Things like organ meat, snouts, and entrails. And amazingly, his restaurant has been a phenomenal success. Guests travel from all over to order food that they spent their entire lives trying to avoid. And honestly, this is how Lent has become for me. Much of my life I've spent trying to get away from the idea of sin and repentance. We live in a culture that encourages us to discard the notions of sin and repentance. But now I can't wait for Lent to come. Because I know there's something so profound and beautiful about embracing our brokenness as we move toward Easter. And so this Lent, we are spending our time in God's Word by looking at Jesus' seven last words from the cross, which are really seven statements. And we're doing this so that we can understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And when we think about the cross, we might be tempted to, to mostly think about the physical and gory details of the crucifixion. And I'm not saying the brutality of what Jesus endured in his body should be disregarded. It shouldn't. But if you read the gospel writers on the crucifixion, there's not much focus on the facts and details of the physical realities. As we read the gospel writers, particularly around the cross, we read and we hear Jesus' last words, and we're moved by what the cross did for us. We're moved by what Jesus accomplished through the cross, more so than what was done to Jesus. Quick recap of where we've been in the series so far. We've looked at the first three statements from the cross, the statement on forgiveness, paradise, and love. This morning, we're going to look at the fourth of the seven last words from the cross. It's the midpoint, yet it's the lowest point for Jesus. It's a cry of dereliction and abandonment. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only statement of Jesus out of the seven that's recorded in the gospel of Mark, which means Mark, the, the author of the gospel, must think it's vital to our understanding of the cross. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's Word in Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. This is God's Word to us this morning. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we pray that you would speak to us now by your word, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. By your spirit, would you speak to our spirits that we might be transformed. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, in the 18th century, the Quakers, who are Christian pacifists, were looking for a way to restore and rehabilitate criminals. And in 1787, they began to impose solitary confinement. They thought a criminal left alone to deal with their inner being and alone from the outside world would, like a monk, come close to God. And at the time, it, it spread to many states. It, it spread to some European countries as people thought it was a more humane practice than others. But evidence began to show that it was actually more detrimental to inmates. Two French politicians came to investigate the U.S. penitentiary system in 1831, and they said this about solitary confinement. Nowhere was this system of imprisonment crowned with the hope for success. In general, it was ruinous to the public treasury and never affected the reformation of the prisoners. In order to reform them, they had been submitted to complete isolation. But this absolute solitude, if nothing interrupts it, is beyond the strength of man. It destroys the criminal without intermission and without pity. It does not reform. It kills. Have you ever wondered why solitary confinement is the worst punishment that a prison inmate can receive? It's brutal and destructive. And it began as, as a hope of reform by the Quakers, but a person left all alone with just their inner being, just their sin, if nothing interrupts it, it's beyond the strength of a man or a woman. And humanity was created to be in communion with others. No person was created to live isolated. No person was created to be cast aside and abandoned. It's inhumane. Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a cry of dereliction and abandonment. Jesus is being treated like some type of roadside kill, like an animal hit by a car left alone to die on the side of the road. And as he hangs on the cross, he bears the sins of the world and he suffers utterly alone. In these words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you may know are a direct quote from Psalm 22. And while I do believe Jesus, the Son of God, knew all of Psalm 22 when he quoted this verse, and I do believe that Scripture was an anchor of hope for Jesus while he was abandoned on the cross, I want to urge you, do not picture a pious Jesus quoting Psalm 22 as he hangs in perfect peace on the cross. We have to take Jesus at his words. In this moment, 
Jesus is undone by sin and suffering. He is abandoned, not just by Pilate who ordered his death sentence and not just by his friends and disciples who deserted him in his greatest hour of need, but Jesus cries out because his father, whom he has known from all eternity, been in communion with from all eternity, turns his face away from him. Can you sense the pain and the hurt of Jesus? In this statement, we learn that the cross is the greatest act of solidarity with humanity. Jesus is identifying with humanity by taking upon himself sin and suffering. And so let's look first at Jesus identifying with us by taking on sin. Now, if all we had was this passage to read about Jesus, one would think that we're reading the end of The Biggest Loser in History. And those who crucified him surely were thinking this. Jesus, you're a loser. You're a nobody. You're insignificant. And Jesus faces it full force. Fleming Rutledge notes that a crucified person in occupied Palestine was double accursed, both by secular government and by religious authorities. Jesus was accursed in the secular sense because he was handed over to the curses of the population. The crowds were supposed to curse him. That was understood. Heaping abuse on a crucified person was part of the ritual. It was part of the entertainment. And maybe we as Americans think we're too sophisticated that we would ever do something like this, but not so fast. Online cursing of others that we deem in the wrong group is rampant. And maybe you're like, ah, and I resist the online part. But cursing and judging people for being in the wrong group is rampant. One of the Beatitudes of our day could sound something like this. Blessed are you when you curse others because then you will be puffed up with self-righteousness. That's the, that's the Beatitude of our day. As a society, we are really good at cursing others we deem on the wrong side of a social or cultural issue. Students, maybe, maybe you're tempted to curse others because you deem them as not being in the right or the in crowd. And I have to be really honest, we're in an election year. And I have some fear and trepidation because 2016 and 2020 were divisive. And it looks like 2024 may be more so. The left cursing the right, the right cursing the left. I want you to hear me, church. In the cross, Jesus absorbs the curses of others. And he is identifying with all those who suffer from the curses of others. So if you have been the victim of cursing from others, know that Jesus identifies with you. And if you've been the villain of cursing, either out loud or online or maybe just in your heart, would you know that Jesus died for whoever you are cursing? May the cross change your heart. The crucified person was not only accursed in a secular sense, they were also accursed in a religious sense. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 20, 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Right? Sin is a power, and it's a cruel dictator. Paul says in places like Romans that we are enslaved to it, that we are all cursed because of our sin and because of our disobedience. And on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. 
He voluntarily and willingly bowed his head under the power of sin and the curse of God so that he could set us free from the tyranny of sin and so that we could receive his gift of righteousness. Jesus identifies with us in our sin by accomplishing what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A little while ago, I used a story from Paul Zoll that I, I want to share again in his book, Grace and Practice. He writes uh, that Christians are a little like a duck hunter who was hunting with his friend, and his friend was teaching him the best duck calls for beginners in a wide open, barren piece of land. And far away on the horizon, he noticed a, a cloud of smoke. And soon he could hear the sound of crackling. And a wind came up and he realized the terrible truth that a brush fire was advancing their way. And it was moving so fast that he and his friend could not outrun it. And the hunter began to, to rifle through his pockets and then he, he emptied all the contents of his knapsack and he soon found what he was looking for, a book of matches. And to his friend's amazement, he pulled out a match and he struck it. And he lit a small fire around the two of them and soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth waiting for this fire to come. And they didn't have to wait very long. Soon they covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and they braced themselves and the fire came near, and it swept over them. They were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched, because fire would not pass where fire had passed. Our guilt of sin and our slavery to sin's power is like the brush fire. We cannot escape it. But if we stand in the burned-over place where Jesus was cursed— where he was already burned, then we will not be hurt. Not a hair of our head will be singed. The death of Christ, the cross of Christ, is the burned over place. And it's there that we huddle as the people of God, struggling at times to believe, yet gratefully relieved that Jesus identifies with us in our sin. The reformer Martin Luther said, when we look at the cross... We ought to see our most bothersome sin there being judged by the ultimate judge. That this is the only thing that can rightly connect Jesus' death with our lives. And sadly, the American church has increasingly bought into the cultural lies and increasingly dismissed the importance of embracing sin and therefore misses out on the power of the cross. Many Christians have, have removed the confession of sin from worship services. This is true in, in many mainline denominational churches as well as big mega churches uh, that are all around. In many senses, the American church has adopted the philosophy of secular culture. Whereas the, the individual is deified, God as self is the most basic belief of our day. We are exhorted all around to just look inside, to love ourselves. I was listening to a song this week with uh, my boys. We get into the car and they're like, play this song, play this song. And this week it's been Play Hope. And we've, been listen we've listened to it at least 10 times. It's by a rapper who goes by the name NF. And I think he's a Christian. And the Play Hope, okay. I knew it was good. Mom told me it was had good lyrics. I was like, all right, let's listen to it. I'm listening. I'm like, this is good, this is good. And then, and then he sings this. What's my definition of success? Doing what your heart says. And I was like, what? <laughs> no, no. Christianity is not just doing what your heart says. 
It's not looking inside, loving yourself, and doing what you deem and define as right or wrong. As Christians, we don't look inside ourselves for hope. Because if we're honest, when we look inside, there's sin at work. And so we look outside ourselves. We look to the cross and we see God, the Father, and the Son together in agreement that the Son would take the curse and the wrath for sinful men and women in order to bring them into his kingdom. We look to the cross and we hear Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we rejoice that in doing so, he sets us free from sin. He is the double cure of sin, cleansing us of sin's guilt and setting us free from its power. Jesus identifies with us in our sin. The second thing I want us to understand is that Jesus identifies with us in our suffering. He cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a feeling of, of being utterly abandoned and alone. Jesus has met with silence. There is no voice from the father like there was at his baptism. There is no voice from the father like there was at the Mount of Transfiguration. At the cross, there's only silence. And silence is deafening when you anticipate an answer. Silence can be loud and clear. It can feel like the deepest rejection. Right? When a friend rejects you, it hurts. When a spouse rejects you, it hurts even more. So can you imagine the hurt when Jesus is rejected by his father, whom he has been with in perfect communion and in perfect love from all eternity? This is perhaps the greatest horror of the cross. The son utterly alone and abandoned by his father. Shusaku Endo wrote a book in 1966. It was made into a movie in 2016 called Silence. It's about 17th century Japan, and maybe you've seen the movie or read the book. A young monk named Father Rodriguez goes looking for his mentor, whom he heard had abandoned his faith in Christ. And upon arriving in Japan, Father Rodriguez sees the suffering of Christians, the, the persecutions of Christians for himself, and his own faith was shaken, and he begins to doubt God. And Father Rodriguez describes his experience of God when looking at this injustice as God remaining with folded arms of silence. God remaining with folded arms of silence. When have you encountered God with folded arms of silence? Maybe it was that time you were crying out to God when you were sitting by that hospital bed. Maybe it was that time you were crying out to God because you felt so alone or you were crying out to God for him to provide or you were crying out for God to change a circumstance or you were crying out for God to make the path clear and silence. The silence of God can be painful. Jesus hung on the cross and his father turned his face from his only son. And in doing so, Jesus was identifying with us in our suffering. Hear me, Jesus on the cross and enduring the silence of God and being God forsaken is the answer to our question. God, where are you now? God, are you forsaking me? Is the answer. We look to the cross and it's God's resounding answer. I am with you. That no matter, no matter what you're going through or will go through, the late nights of tossing and turning because of anxiety, the dark nights of the soul where, where, you're, where you're doubting the presence and the goodness of God, the times that you feel like God has folded arms of silence, it is the cross that reminds us God is with us. The cross is the good news 
that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in whatever we might go through. But the greatest news of the cross is that Jesus endured what we will never have to, nor would we ever want to. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote in his book, The Crucified God, God did not become man according to the measure of our conceptions of being a man. He became the kind of man we don't want to be, an outcast, accursed, crucified. There's a story told about a Nazi concentration camp in Dachau, Germany. There was uh, an escape attempt, and the guard picked out 12 young men to hang as an act of retaliation and a warning to others. And the whole camp was assembled around the gallows to witness this event, and there was a deathly silence until a voice came from somewhere in the crowd, where now is your God? And a long pause occurred, and then a voice answered, there, there on the gallows, there is our God. And it was a profound theological answer at an excruciating time of experiencing evil, pain, suffering, and abandonment, the answer to what felt like evil triumphing and God being silent was there, in the suffering, there and on the gallows. There is our God. For our God, Christian, is a crucified God. The cross is not just something that happened to Jesus. The cross is who Jesus is. He is the crucified one, the crucified Christ, the suffering servant who sets us free from the tyranny of sin and who is with us in our suffering. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. May we know the power of it each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.